Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we could come here this morning into your house and to worship you. We thank you for the blessing of being able to, to sing praises to you and to, to listen as your word is, is read. Lord, to be able to come to you in prayer. Uh, but God is the God who is omniscient, who knows all things, the God who is omnipresent, the God who is omnipotent, all-powerful. You know our hearts. You know what it is that we need. You know the things that we are dealing with in our lives. And we pray this morning that you might speak to us through your word today. Uh, God, that you would strengthen your church. Lord, even that you would challenge us and convict us of our sin. That we might turn from that sin, Lord, and, and walk in obedience and enjoy the blessing the fellowship of living as you have called us and created us to live. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that the, the visible unity of Christ's church is of the utmost importance to God. The reason being is that the oneness that characterizes the church is part of God's design for his people. And that's why Peter or Peter Paul states there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all and as such the church strives more and more to preserve and maintain this unity each member cooperating with the others. And as, as we see that happen within the church, the gospel moves mightily forward uh, out to the nations. I mean, not just in our own community, but even around the world. The church itself rejoices in to see God at work in our midst. And Satan, and I think we oftentimes don't think of this, and Satan trembles when that happens. Because he sees the power of God and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop God. And not only that, but the name of God is glorified. Amen. And so it's, it's awesome to see God at work in his people. But for God, unity is not accomplished through uniformity. You know, God doesn't mean for everyone to be the same. To be sort of cookie cutter Christians where everybody dresses the same and everybody talks the same. And maybe you've been in churches like that where if you go, you're just expected to sort of fall in line with the way that the church does things. And, you know, that church just sort of has its own culture and its own personality. And you better fit in or you're out. But that's not what we see within the body of Christ. You know, just as within the oneness of the Holy Trinity, there is a glorious diversity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So within the oneness of the church, there is a diversity that's not only to be appreciated and, and practiced, but which contributes to the unity of the church. Because diversity, far from destroying unity, will have properly used will actually promote it so in other words God designed the church to be diverse so that it might be unified now I know that might sound sort of strange in some ways but that's exactly the way he intended it and so we're going to look at the diversity of the church over the next couple of weeks as we sort of work our way through verses uh, 7 through 16 
And we're going to look at three things. First of all, we're going to look at the giver of gifts to the church in verses 10 or 7 through 10. Then we're going to look at some of the gifts themselves that, that Jesus gives to the church in verses 11 and 12. And then finally, we're going to look at the goal of those gifts, the outworking of those gifts in the church in verses 13 through 16. Now, today we're only going to look at the first point of that. There's just too much here to, to cover in one week. So today we're going to look at Jesus as the giver of the gifts to the church and, and what that means for our church here at Kirk of the Plains. And so the first thing I want us to see in verse 7 is, is that Jesus gives gifts to individual believers. Every believer has been individually given gifts by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, Jesus blesses the church by giving each believer his grace in giving them spiritual gifts. And the Bible talks about spiritual gifts um, in, in many different places, and if that's something you want to look at further, uh, you can look at places like Romans chapter 12, which we'll be looking at today, uh, verses 6 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the whole chapter is great, but especially verses 8 through 10 and 28 through 30. Here in Ephesians 11, talks about gifts given to the church, 1 Peter chapter 4. Anyway, you just see this throughout the New Testament, through Paul's writings, through Peter's writings, uh, this idea of spiritual gifts. But what's interesting is, is as you look at verse 7 here, it, Paul doesn't actually use the word spiritual gifts. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. Okay, so uh, as you look at that, you might think, well, where do you get the idea of spiritual gifts? Well, one, if you look, at, if we, you know, that's why I wanted to read verses 1 through 16, so you can see that this statement is made in the context of gifts that Christ has given through the church here within this chapter. But also, if you look at Romans chapter 12, flip over there if you would to Romans chapter 12, verse 6, you see this idea of grace and gifts brought together by the Apostle Paul. Let me read Romans 12, verse 6. Uh, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So you see here that that the gifts that are given to the church are given as a result of the grace that Jesus Christ has given to the church. So Christ, according to the measure of his gift to the church, has given each believer the grace in the form of different spiritual gifts. And like I said, 1 Corinthians 12 is probably the chapter that most people think of when they think of this idea of spiritual gifts. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 12, we see that in the same way that the human body has different parts that perform different functions for the well-being of the whole body. So the church has been given spiritual gifts for the university or for the university, for the unity of the whole. And so that being different and having different gifts and abilities actually makes the local church well, and, and even the universal church stronger. Uh, let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That, and we see here that the manifestation of the Spirit in the church at Corinth was the different spiritual gifts that God had given to that local body. So in light of the truth that gifts are sovereignly given by God, there's several things I want us to, to think about this morning. First of all, we should seek prayerfully to develop 
and mature whatever gifts the Lord has been pleased to give us because they are part of God's plan. You know, we ought to use those gifts. Since they were given to us by the good pleasure and kindness of Christ, as, it's, as Paul says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, we shouldn't envy one another's gifts. I mean, have you ever felt like that? That you look and you're like, wow, I wish I could teach Sunday school like so-and-so. Or, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so seems to always just know what to say to visitors when they walk in the door. They can strike up a conversation. I just, Lord, I wish I could do that. And sometimes we just sort of envy other people's abilities and gifts that the Lord has given to them. But we ought not to do that. That Jesus Christ, when he gave gifts to each individual person, he gave them the gifts that they, that they need. And so we should prayerfully uh, ask the Lord what our gift is and to use that gift for his glory. And we should not envy the gifts given to other Christians, wishing that we had those gifts. And also, since all gifts are given to the church from God, no gift should be exalted over another to say, Oh Lord, you gave me this gift, but I really wish I had had this gift instead. Or you know what? This, this, is, this person is way more important in the church. You know, Pastor Rick, he stands up front and he, he has been given the calling to be an elder in the church and to preach the word. He must be more spiritual than me. You know, all I do is... Uh, you know, watch the nursery. All I do is uh, teach Sunday school or whatever. But there ought to not be any gift that is exalted over another. I mean, we read in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul even says that those gifts which are the weakest, those parts of the body that are the weakest, are the most important. If you didn't have those, you would the body would definitely feel it. And also, we need to understand that no gift should be unused. That Christ has given to the church. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know one thing for certain, you have a gift. Maybe you have several gifts, but you have at least one gift that God has given to you. And because God is the one that has given that gift to you, you are to use that gift as he intended. And so to fail to use one's gift in the body, life of the church, is a sin against the Lord. Now, we may not think about that. You know, oftentimes, and I, I hate this, how uh, many in the, the church have sort of uh, reduced this idea of spiritual gifts to the thing of just trying to get volunteers to do things. That's not at all what's happening. I took a class on volunteerism in, in seminary, and the first thing the professor said was, there's no such thing as volunteerism in the church. He said, because Jesus Christ has given every person a spiritual gift. And as a minister, you need to help them to understand it's not a matter of choosing to volunteer or not volunteer. It's a matter of part of your salvation that Jesus has given to you has been to give you gifts and abilities to use in the church so that you will strengthen the church as we'll see in just a moment. But I just think about how many Christians come to church only on Sunday mornings for worship, and they never interact with the body of believers until the next Sunday when they come to worship again, never using the spiritual gifts that God has given to them, and yet they just think everything's okay with their, with their walk with the Lord. And Paul says that's not true. You know, Paul says that Jesus has given gifts to each one of us, 
And I like the way Peter puts it, and you, you're welcome to turn there if you want, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter tells us that as each has received a gift, we are to use it to serve one another. I mean, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, or Romans chapter 12, verse 5, that we are members of one another. That's how connected we are. That the gifts that God has given to us are really for the benefit of the church. And, and I like the way that, that Peter describes it in 1 Peter 4.10. He says that we are to use the gifts that we have received to serve one another as, go, as good stewards of God's very grace. So God has given us his grace, poured out his grace upon the church and given us his gifts. And he has made us stewards of those gifts. And we are to use those gifts for the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. So that means that the spiritual gifts that Christ has given to us don't belong to us, but to the body. So that we must use our gifts in the church and the church relies upon us to do so. So it's not just a matter of, you know, getting people for the pastor to get people to do what he wants them to do or to, to get people to volunteer because we just need to get more people involved. It's not that idea. It is so important that we comprehend that Jesus' intent in giving these gifts is for Christians to be reliant upon each other. Can you now see where the unity comes in? You know, if I need you and you need me for, for spiritual growth, there is a sense of unity that happens because of that. I like the way John Calvin put it. He said, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. Do you hear that? In other words, I don't have everything it takes for me to grow to spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ. I need you. The Lord has given you spiritual gifts, and you spiritual gifts, and me spiritual gifts. And as we use those gifts within the body of Christ, we're going to see, as we get to verses uh, 13 through 16, how that causes the body to be built up and to, to grow to maturity. But is that how we view the church? Is that how we view our relationships with each other? That God and His design... In, in essence, I don't know if this is the right word or not, but sort of makes me handicap, makes you handicap, so that we might be dependent upon each other. None of us is able to grow to spiritual maturity without each person at Kirk of the Plains using the gifts that God has given to them. You can imagine how detrimental it is to the church when certain people choose not to use their spiritual gifts. Or maybe it's not that they don't choose to use it. Maybe they want to. But maybe Satan has whispered into their ear, you know, something like, what? Who do you think you are? You know, you're nothing. I mean, you know, look at so-and-so who, who does this or so-and-so who does that. You know, you can see that they're important. But what do you have to contribute to the body of Christ? And it's so easy to think, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm nothing really special. I don't know that what I do really makes that big a difference. You know, but that is a lie of Satan to keep us from using the gifts and for causing the body to be strengthened. So as the church exists and exercises the diversity of gifts that Jesus gives to it, the church grows and matures in its unity and the church is built up. You see, the gifts that Christ gives are exactly suited to the work he wants to do in, in a church in which his church needs if it is to be built up. 
So Christ gives these gifts to the church. But the second point is, though, is how Jesus obtained this right to give these gifts to the church. And this is important for us to answer. How is it that Jesus is able to bestow these gifts upon the church? And that's what Paul talks about in verses 8 through 10. Uh, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul introduces a passage from Psalm 68. He's actually referring to Psalm 68:18. So you can keep your one hand there at Ephesians 4, but you can also turn back to Psalm 68, verse 18, if you want. And which has a bearing upon what Paul is talking about in terms of these gifts that have been given to the church. And, and Paul doesn't intend to quote literally this psalm, but rather he explains this portion of Psalm 68 by showing how uh, it was written uh, to fulfill what Christ has done. And he says, uh, actually in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, he goes, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, after a king won a victory, he would bring home the spoils, which uh, included you know, all the, the money and the sheep and whatever it is that they got, as well as enemy prisoners. And they would even bring home uh, maybe the king's own people who had been captured in previous times. And the king has set those people free. And he brings this whole parade, as it were, uh, into the town. And, and so an Israelite king would take his entourage, uh, you know, all this stuff. He had gotten all his soldiers and, and stuff. And he would parade it through the city of Jerusalem and up to Mount Zion to show the great victory that he had won. And that's the picture that Paul is, uh, is applying here to, uh, of, of a victorious king to Jesus in his ascension from earth to heaven after his resurrection. In Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus conquered Satan and sin and death. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't return to heaven empty-handed. It's not like he just arose from the dead and, and pop, now he's in heaven. You know, but on the contrary, as a, as a result of the mediatorial work that Christ had done, he returned in triumph to heaven in the full possession of the salvation for his people in order to give spoils away for the building up of the kingdom of God. And, and it's worth noting that as you look at Psalm 68, if you, if you have your hands there in Psalm 68, you'll notice that the wording it's a little bit different than Ephesians 4, verse 8. Uh, let me read Psalm 68. Uh, he said, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. Now, that's a pretty big difference. Psalm 68 says that you know this king receives these gifts. He, he receives this spoil. And actually, in Ephesians 4, it says how he gave these gifts away. Now, for some people, they look at this and they say, this is a clear example of how fallible the Bible is. You know, see, there's mistakes in the Bible. It's, it's contradictory. You just can't, you know, so it's not really trustworthy. Others would argue and say, well, Paul was just sort of changing the, the manipulating the text so that he could get it to say what he wanted it to say. But if you look carefully at the text, you'll see that Paul's explanation is merely a faithful uh, spirit-inspired exegesis of what Psalm 68 is really saying. You know, in verse 9, Paul draws a logical conclusion from the fact that Christ 
ascended and that if he ascended, he must have also first descended. And in Psalm 68, 18, if, if the ascended Lord received gifts, he did so in order that he might give gifts. And that's what Paul's trying to bring out. Yes, the king did receive gifts, but it wasn't for his own benefit. He received gifts that he might give those gifts away. And we see this practice throughout the Bible where, you know, for example, Abraham in Genesis 14, there was a multitude of kings that had come against him. And Abraham uh, defeated those kings and Abraham just took his people back. But then he took the spoil from that and he gave some to uh, Melchizedek, the priest. He gave some to other people. Uh, you see that with David in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 26 through 31, where he would go and once he defeated the enemies, he would come back and he would divide the spoils amongst his mighty men. Uh, you see that, I mean, even in Israel's enemies. It wasn't just a practice of Israel, but of any. And, and that's how Peter understood the relationship between Christ and the receiving of gifts. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Remember Peter, in the sermon that he preached on the day of, of Pentecost, he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, uh, that is, Christ now uh, being raised from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God. And we talked about this in Sunday school. You know, it's not that Jesus is sitting on God's right hand, but he's not on his left. It's a matter of authority. It's a position of authority. Anybody that sat on the right hand side of the king, the king was saying, this is a person that has authority. So when Christ was exalted to this position of authority and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was part of Christ receiving the spoils as the victorious king. And he is now pouring that out upon his church. So Paul's not playing uh, fast and loose with the inspired text of Holy Scripture. He's just wanting us to help us to understand what was the intent and the meaning of that in Psalm 68. And, and it's important that we understand this. I think so often in the church we talk about Christ's death and we talk about his resurrection. When's the last sermon that you heard on Christ's ascension? Of him ascending up into heaven. And he now sits at the right hand of God and what that means for our lives. We seldom think about Christ's ascension into glory and his continuing work as our uh, ascended high priest. Do we not? But it is a significant moment in the history of redemption. And we oftentimes focus only upon the cross and the resurrection. But this emphasis on the, the finished work of Christ belongs at the heart of the Christian faith. You know, when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he was signaling the completion of his sin-bearing, sin-atoning death upon the cross. And so Christ's ascension is not only uh, sealed the triumph of this once and for all work of atonement, but it also shows us that Christ is continually at work. Christ is at work today. He has uh, a work that he is doing in the sense that he watches over us. He is interceding on behalf of the church. You know that? I mean, you're living this life on this earth that's fallen and you face temptations, uh, you, you have struggles during the day. Do you know that you don't do this without Christ praying for you? He's in interceding for you 
each and every day and for his church. He, he watches over us. He's protecting us from all his enemies and he's ministering to us the blessings of his grace. He is caring for us and he is defending his people. So for Paul, Christ's ascension is, is an important thing. It shows us God's work. But also as he talks about his ascension, he's also implying his incarnation as well. He, he says in verse 9, he talks about how Christ descended. You know, he who ascended or went up to heaven has first come down from heaven. And he even says in verse 9, into the lower parts of the earth. Now, this is a very difficult passage for many interpreters, and it has been that way for many years. If you don't believe me, pick up a commentary and just read about this, and you're going to see all these different views. Now, what does this mean that he, he descended into the lower parts of the earth? I will save you. Uh, a lot of time, and we're not going to go through everything, but you know, some have meant this to mean uh, Christ's incarnation. Others have pointed that it's referring to Christ being buried in the grave. One strand of interpretation dating to the early church sees this as what's called the, the heroine of hell. You know, the, this describes Jesus' supposed visit to hell after his death and before his resurrection, to which Peter may be referring to in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. But I think if you're careful to look at this in this passage in the context in, in which it's meant, it shows that the descent that Paul has in mind is that Jesus' descent from heaven to earth in the incarnation. And, and I say that because if you look at verse 9 and 10, the depth of Christ's descent in his incarnation is said to be into the lower parts of the earth, and that provides a striking contrast to the term that he uses in verse 10, where he talks about how Christ ascended far above all the heavens. So you have this far above all the heavens versus this uh, lower parts of the earth. And so it shows you how humiliated that Christ was in coming to get salvation for us. But then we see in verse 10, it was... Uh, the once deeply humiliated Jesus that had ascended into heaven so that he might fill all things. You know, so, uh, you know, this is sort of language Paul has used before in chapter 1, verse 23. But, but the point that he's trying to make here is that the incarnate, crucified Jesus is now the risen, ascended Lord who has all authority in heaven and earth. And so he rises to heaven and he fills all things. That is, he reigns and rules over all things as uh, the one who then gives gifts to his church. Now, let's just think about this ascension just for a moment if we could. And let me just apply it in a couple of ways. Even though Jesus' ascension is not often uh, uh, preached upon, it has great significance for our, our uh, Christian life. The first way, the ascension of Christ, is where we as Christians really ought to have our hope. Since Jesus has left this world, our hope is not here. Our hope ought not to be in the economy. Our hope ought not to be in what the government does or does not do. Our hope ought to not to be in public policy or the, the, um, our jobs that we have or the strength of our families, or anything else. But our hope is in heaven. Charles Spurgeon, a famous Baptist preacher, he says, From the hour when our Lord left it, this world has lost all charms to us. 
The flower is gone from the garden. The first ripe fruit is gathered. Earth's crown has lost its brightest jewel. No, earth, my treasure, is not here with thee. Neither shall my heart be detained by thee. You see, Christ has gone into heaven. And so that's where our hope is. That's where we set our focus in, in our Christian life. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Do we see those things in our life that we encounter as spiritual matters? Do we see these things that we take these matters to the Lord, knowing that Christ is our hope? But the second thing I want us to see is that Christ's ascension causes us to realize the spiritual resources that are available to us now because Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus has spiritual resources to give that, that we greatly need. We need the power to believe. Now, I don't know where you're at today and what is going on in your life completely, but there may be some here today who are struggling in their walk with the Lord. And they find themselves sort of pulling back and they may find themselves doubting. They may find themselves wrestling with circumstances in their life and they're trying to reconcile that with who God is and what he does. God has the power. Jesus has the power to help you to believe. He has he strengthens us to overcome temptation. He gives us grace to love and, and to serve others. And, and that's the point that Jesus has as he has this discussion with his disciples the night uh, of his arrest. You know, he's talking to them about how he's going to go away. And as, the, as he talks about how he's going to leave because he knows he's going to die and be resurrected, his disciples are very troubled. As a matter of fact, Jesus told him, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And of course, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus was in the world, he walked with the 12 disciples and he taught them and he instructed them. But now that he's ascended and he has sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in his disciples, in millions of us, in all who are Christians. And he's not merely speaking words into our ears, but by the Spirit's power is transforming us into the image of God. You see, the ascension makes all the difference. And we see that in the different disciples. Look at Peter. You know, Peter, I, I can so relate to Peter. Can anybody else? You don't have to raise your hand. But, you know, it's like open mouth, insert foot up to about your knee. You know, and that's sort of how I oftentimes feel and the struggles that I have. But there's a significant difference between Peter's life when Christ was here upon earth and once he ascended and, and gave his Holy Spirit. You see uh, Peter's life radically changed. But that's the power that is available to us because the Holy Spirit who Christ sends to us from heaven and that he has given to us. And since Christ has ascended in triumph, the Christian life has a supernatural power. Do you believe that? Seriously. Do you believe that? Or do you live your life the best way you know how, with maybe praying to God here and there every once in a while? Maybe God, you can help me a little bit. Maybe you can just get me over the speed bump of life. Or do we really... 
turn to God, understanding the greatness of the power that he has, the ministry that he has in his church today, and looking to him and praying to him. Brothers and sisters, we no longer have to rely upon the techniques and mere human effort, but on the power that comes through the obedience of God's word. This is Paul's emphasis throughout the book of Ephesians, that the power of Christ is the key to the Christian life. That as we see God's work in his church, we see that power. But also Christ has a role in each of us to play in the work of the church. And this too is supernatural. This is what Paul was talking about when he's talking about spiritual gifts. Now, let me just mention briefly, we were running out of time, so I'll just sort of try to summarize this more. But you may not know what the gifts are that the Lord has given to you. And you might say, how, how do I know? I, you know, a matter of fact, you might even say, this is the first time I've heard anything about spiritual gifts. How, how do I find out what they are? Well, I would encourage you to come talk with me or, or someone else you know and trust if you want to understand this better. But, um, but typically, or as I should say, as a general rule of thumb, spiritual gifts are revealed during and through our service to Christ. In other words, uh, you should respond to the needs of the church in which you think that you can meet. If you see something in our church that you think that, you know, maybe we're lacking as a church, you think, man, I wish we would do, and then you fill in the blank. Or maybe you see some need that is here and, and you want to do it. I'd encourage you to step in and to meet that need. Uh, you should respond in the church that you are able to meet. And as you serve then just pray for God's discernment about the spiritual gifts and say, is this the place that I am to serve and to use my gifts? And usually when you use your spiritual gifts, other people are blessed and you are as well. And oftentimes you sort of, uh, I, I know people that will serve in the church and when you say, wow, thank you so much for, for using your gifts in the church. Or I appreciate how you do this or how you do that. Usually people's response when they're using their spiritual gifts are, it's no big deal. Really isn't that hard. Actually, I enjoy doing that. Usually those are the kind of responses you get. And you know why? Because God has gifted those people in that way to do that. So it doesn't seem like a, a greatly difficult thing. And so don't just wait around for some mystical revelation as if God's going to part the heavens and tell you what your spiritual gift is. Begin to serve Christ, eager for him to reveal the gifts and calling that he is graciously appointed to you. And then finally, uh, if you have not yet become a part of Christ's church, the ascension speaks to you as well. Uh, because Jesus ascended into heaven, he now sends the Holy Spirit with power into the hearts of sinful men and women, bringing them to spiritual life and granting them the power to believe in him. The ascended Christ sends forth his living word even as it's preached and shared by other believers. And by his word, he's, he's calling us all to believe in him. And by believing to be forgiven of our sins and to return, receive eternal life. You know, in this, Jesus tells the parable of the talents in Scripture. And he speaks of how he has given gifts to, to believers, to his servants, that they are to use those gifts. And, and, uh, he, he set, and he holds them to account. And 
he says to those that served well, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and very little, you shall uh, be, you shall receive authority over much. But in the same parable, Jesus also spoke to those who had rejected him, who hated him, and uh, even said, we don't want this man to, to reign over us. And, and Jesus, uh, when he returns, he'll be like the conquering king in this parable where he will come and he will say to those people who have rejected him, I now reject you. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse 27, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now those seem like very harsh words. But if you reject Jesus Christ now, your condemnation then will be just as terrible. Uh, turn to him. He says, come to me and be saved. Then someday soon you will ascend along with all the people of God to the place of glory and triumph where Christ serves. But for now, Christ bestows his gifts upon the church and even calls us, those who don't believe in him, to trust in him and to receive those gifts as well. Let's take a moment and bow our heads this morning as we reflect upon the word that's preached this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that you are not only alive and that you rule in all authority for the sake of your church, uh, but we thank you, God, that you are our high priest in heaven and that you are still, um, you are still working for the sake of your people, pouring out your salvation and the gifts upon your church. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work through um, the gifts that you have given to us as a body to strengthen us and to, to unify us. Lord, I, I pray that um, for those that might be here today that are struggling, that are weak, that maybe feel alone, who say, well, I've received Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, but I, I'm struggling. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, enable them to see that, Christ, you are still at work. Their salvation is not something in the past, but it's something in the present. And that they can turn to you and cry out to you. I pray, Lord, that you would make your power evident in our lives uh, to draw our hearts ever closer to you. Uh, Lord, there may be those that are fearful or worrying about the future and the unknown things that are coming up. Lord, we pray for your peace to rest upon them. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray and just thank you so much that your salvation is so complete. Where we might be tempted to think of it in sort of pockets here and there of certain things, it is the fullness of your salvation. It is the greatness of your salvation. It is the outworking of your mighty power. And Lord, I pray that we would see these things in our midst uh, for, your, for your namesake. We thank you, Lord. And pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.